There are more prophecies about the Antichrist in the Bible than anyone else with the exception of Jesus. So this is obviously a very important figure in biblical prophecy. We will talk about prophecies of the Antichrist in this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we are on the subject of the Antichrist. And we are doing the second part of the introduction to the Antichrist. In last episode, we talked about the myths of the Antichrist, since he is such a integral figure, not just in the Bible, but in all of pop culture. There's going to be a blend of truth and falsehoods as man adds, men add their own interpretations and thoughts and traditions about the Antichrist that are going to be in conflict, if not contradiction, to what the Bible says about him and his career. And so we try to dispel some of those myths in the last episode. And in this episode, we're going to start dealing with the truth of the Antichrist. And of course, all truth comes from the Bible. The Bible is the source of all truth. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about the Antichrist, who he is, where he comes from, and what his career is going to be, and everything about him before we actually dive into the the subject of the antichrist himself looking at what he is going to be doing during the time during the period of time that we call the tribulation which is obviously the huge focus of the book of revelation that we are studying so as i said in the introduction there are just a ton of prophecies about him second only to jesus only jesus has more prophecies in the old testament and the and the new about him about him than the than the antichrist does this coming world leader the beast and all the other names we talked about and many of those names are given here in the old testament and we'll talk about many of them but interestingly the first prophecy of the antichrist actually comes at the same time as the first prophecy of jesus in, in fact technically the prophecy of the antichrist comes one sentence or, or one phrase before the prophecy of jesus so the antichrist is actually predicted before jesus is where are we talking about we're talking about genesis chapter 3 original sin the fall of adam and eve when they are tempted in the garden by the serpent or the nahash the shining one who we know as lucifer and satan and once that temptation happens and the original sin occurs god pronounces curses on the man the woman and the serpent the nakash and when he pronounces a the the curse on the serpent he says that god says that he will put enmity between the nakash and the woman and between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman so the first seed mentioned is the seed of the serpent now we know that the seed of the woman is the first prophecy of jesus the seed is is where is he uh, the progenitor so the seed of the woman means that uh, jesus will be the product or the uh, offspring of the woman but it first says that he will put enmity between the woman and between the serpent's offspring number one and the offspring of the woman again offspring of the woman is jesus it refers to the virgin birth but that but there's two seeds there, two offspring. The first is the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the Nahash, the offspring of Satan. And that is the very first prophecy of the Antichrist. The entity we call the Antichrist will be the offspring of Satan. Now, is this a literal offspring or is it a spiritual offspring? Well, I would argue that's going to be both. And we see evidence of that in the Bible. Now, the first offspring possibly the first offspring of Satan might actually occur a few chapters later in Genesis chapter six. 
We've talked a whole lot about Genesis chapter six on faith by reason in, in not just in the, in revelation, but all throughout the, um, the, the faith by reason website, because I think that understanding revelation chapter six, excuse me, Genesis chapter six, as well as Gen, as, um, uh, Deuteronomy 32 are the keys to understanding a great deal of what's going on in the Bible. That's part of the supernatural worldview, which I talk about quite a bit, and I harp on it all the time because I am, I firmly believe that you will not understand the vast majority of the biblical narrative if you do not have the supernatural worldview, and that supernatural worldview is intrinsically tied to those two chapters, Genesis 6 and Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, that is when God disinherits the nations. He, he after uh, Bab the Babel incident, which we'll talk about pretty soon, after the Babel incident where God confuses the languages and divides man up into nations, he puts Elohim, angels, over the 70 nations that he divides the world into, and he takes Israel as his own nation. And of course, those 70 Angels eventually fall. They become they start to uh, become worshipped and crave that worship, and they become all the false gods who we deal with in paganism. We talked about that a few episodes ago when we looked at the trial of the ages. We've talked about it before, but that's a huge part of what the entire biblical narrative is about: God reclaiming the nations, Jesus re-inheriting re those nations, and that's one of the main purposes of the entire book of Revelation is to judge the fallen Elohim who uh, who took over the nations and led them astray. That's what the all the judgments and the bowls of wrath and the trumpets and all that thing was all about. We've talked about that before. And if you don't understand that, if you don't accept that point of view, then you are basically ignoring or, or intention, being intentionally obtuse about a great deal of what's happening in the Bible because the Bible refers to it a, a lot. The other part that you need to understand is Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, it starts by saying that the, the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, came down and had intercourse with women and produced offspring. The Benaiha Elohim is a designation of angelic beings. They are not the sons of Seth. We've talked about this many, many times. That's a ridiculous argument. It makes absolutely no sense biblically, logically, uh, Epistem epistemologically, it makes no sense that those are men. It just doesn't. Those are angelic beings. It's that's how it's understood. That's how it was understood by the original writers of the Bible. It's how it was understood by the by the Jews all the way up until the second century. Some of the early church fathers who were embarrassed by the idea. People like Augustine and Origen, and they said, "Well, no, it could not have been angels having intercourse with women. That's not, that's crazy. So we're gonna just pretend it was the sons of Seth. Nonsense." These were angelic beings. Okay, what does that have to do with Satan and his seed? Well, in the um, pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, those angels, many of those angels in uh, that uh, did this mischief in Genesis chapter 6 are named. Now, granted, none of them are actually named Lucifer or Satan, but there is one of the, one of the angels in, in the book is, is called Azazel. And there is reason to believe that Azazel may have been Satan. Azazel may have been one of the early names for the, the Nakash, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who again, we've, Lucifer, who we've, we've come to call the devil and Satan. Why do I say this? Well, our first hint, hint comes from the only place in the biblical canon where we see the name Azazel. Again, the, uh, the book of Enoch is pseudepigraphal. I, I think it's a, a book that should be taken seriously because uh, it's quoted from, is quoted by 
uh, other folks in the Bible, Peter and Jude directly quote from it. Jesus refers to it as well. It's, it was a, a very well-known book during first temple, second temple Judaism. Jews of the first century knew it. However, we have here, the, if you, even if you don't consider that a, a true book of the Bible, you even you have it in the actual canon of the Bible in Leviticus 16, verse 8, where uh, God is telling people about the sin offering. And you, there were two goats. And one goat was considered the against the good goat, which was you know was kept in in the camp. But the the other another goat would would symbolically bear the sins of Israel, and it would be sent off into the wilderness, and it would be sent off to Azazel in the wilderness. It's translated scapegoat in some translations. If you look at the traditional King James, it's called the scapegoat, which is where we get. The, the vernacular term scapegoat, but that actual word in Hebrew, which you'll see in, in versions like the English Standard Version, it says that that goat on which the sins of the of the nation is is pla are placed is called Azazel, and it's sent out into the wilderness for Azazel. So what does that have to do with Satan? Well, first of all, Satan, well, Azazel is, 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 is said to basically eat that goat. He's gonna eat the sins of man. That is Satan's food. Satan's food is the dust of man. We see that in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent is given that um, that judgment. Furthermore, when we look at the life of Jesus after Jesus was baptized, what happens next? Jesus is is driven out where to the wilderness, the same wilderness that the scapegoat, the goat for Azazel, is sent. And who does he? Who does Jesus encounter in the wilderness after forty days? Satan. The wilderness is the domain of Satan, the wilderness being the desert in this case. So just like the the scapegoat has a, bears the sins of the people and is, and is sent out to be devoured by Azazel, Jesus, who bears the sins of the world, was sent out into the wilderness and he also encountered Satan. So that is a strong connection between Satan and this entity Azazel. So that's something to keep in mind. Furthermore, when you see depictions of Satan, so this, this is a tradition, this is a Jewish tradition that Azazel is Satan, and it's also a secular tradition because when we see Satan depicted, what is his most common depiction? As a goat deity. Satan is depicted as having sometimes a head of a goat, or at the very least, the, the lower body of a goat. That's where you that's where we get those common depictions of Satan as having hooves and you know, hooves like a goat and horns like a goat from Azazel, the scapegoat, this goat entity. So there is again strong reason to believe that Satan might have been Azazel. And if that's the case, and Azazel was one of the angels who came down in Genesis chapter six and had and procreated with women, well, that is Satan's first attempt in making his, in creating his own seed. Well, who was the seed of Satan in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter six? We don't know. It's not important because whoever he is died in the flood. But again, I just want to the whole point of that was to let you know that Satan has been trying to put his seed on the throne of the world for since the very beginning. And I think the next big attempt was with Nimrod. Nimrod, we see him in Genesis chapter 10, right after the flood. He was the great grandson of Noah and Nimrod started the world's first empire. He was the first world dictator, and he has a lot in common with the entity called the Antichrist. In fact, Nimrod, until the Antichrist comes, Nimrod had the most successful world empire. He was the one who emulated the Antichrist more than anyone else in history, so much so that I believe that 
there is a very, very, very strong connection between Nimrod and the Antichrist, which we will, we will talk about a couple of episodes from now. But uh, among other things, Nimrod was a hybrid. He was a Nephilim. He was a, a human angelic hybrid. The Bible says that Nimrod began to become a Giborim. Giborim is one of the titles, one of the descriptions of the Nephilim. Nimrod became a Nephilim, a, a, a human spiritual hybrid. And he fulfilled much of what the Antichrist is going to fulfill. He got the world all together in one for one cause. He was building a tower, the ziggurat of Babel to reach heaven, not, not because heaven's in the sky, but he was basically building a gateway to invade heaven. And that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do in the last days. We'll talk about that when we get to the Armageddon scenario. But understand that when we talk about Armageddon, it kind of seems silly because the the idea of Armageddon is that the armies of the world under the Antichrist are going to are, are going to Jerusalem, going to Israel to make war against God, which just seems ridiculous. You, you're really going to point a gun at God and try to shoot him out of the sky. But yet yeah, that's not what's happening. What they're doing, they're going to the Mount of Assembly in Israel, the cosmic mountain where God uh, where, where God holds court. And they are going to try to invade the mountain of God. That's what's going on in, in Armageddon. Armageddon is not them trying to fight God with knives and guns. They're going to attempt to do what was done in Babel. They're going to try to build a gateway, a spiritual gate into the heavenly realms and invade it. That's what Nimrod was trying to do in Babel. That's what the Antichrist is going to do again. So the Antichrist is basically Nimrod 2.0 in more ways than one. So was Nimrod a direct um, seed of Satan? Maybe, maybe not. There's, there are uh, traditions that Nimrod's mother, who was also his wife, uh, Semiramis, was impregnated by an angelic being who may have been Satan, may, maybe not. I mean, that's again, that's kind of out there. But the bottom line is that he was at least spiritually a seed of Satan, that he was trying to do everything the Antichrist was going to do until God stopped it by confusing the languages. And as we keep going uh, down the line through the biblical history, we keep seeing more people who uh, could fulfill this role. We see the Pharaoh who who ruled the world. We see after the Pharaoh and, and um, we get further down the road to where um, the children of Israel were going to the promised land. They encountered an entity called uh, or a person called Adonai Zedek, which is translated the Lord of Righteousness, who was in the land and was you know, possessed Israel and Jerusalem and, and fought against them. Again, another type of the Antichrist who was again in the land of God and calling himself again the Lord of Righteousness. You can even go down to Nebuchadnezzar who ruled the world and who was you know the head of gold in Daniel's prophecies. He was another, I believe, a type of, of Antichrist who also had spiritual connections. You look at the all, all the all the world all the leaders of these world empires had some of the, the similar characteristics. You know, Cyrus the Persian of the Persian Empire, along with his prede his predecessors and antecedents, uh, Darius and Xerxes. You know, look at Alexander the Great. He's interesting because again, he obviously ruled the Greek Empire, which was you know, one of the uh, great world empires. There, Alexander the Great's mother stated that he was that Alexander was not actually the son of her and her husband Philip but actually that Alexander was sired by a serpent she claimed to have have had intercourse with a serpent and then produced Alexander and if she was not exaggerating then Alexander the Great might have been a seed of the serpent of of, of Satan um you have 
all kinds of others. You have the Caesars of Rome who all claim to be divine um, from uh, uh, Caesar Augustus all the way through to Constantine. All the Caesars of Rome who rule the world, they claim to be part human and part divine. You know, were they just boasting about this in order to uh, you know, prop themselves up as the leaders of the world, maybe? Or was there something to it? Were they literally either some type of Nephilim seeds or, or did they have some type of spiritual connection? Hmm? Then you continue going down history. You have all the popes who... Um, we talked about this in the, in the last episode, how they all had characteristics of the Antichrist and that they were theological leaders as well as world leaders. They demanded worship. They had all, all this pomp and circumstance around them. They claimed to be God on earth, which is what the Antichrist will claim. So they all have, you know, we have reason to believe that they all had some type of Antichrist connection. You have, you know, again, we get in relatively modern times. You have folks like Hitler, who, as I stated in the last episode, could have been the, the an Antichrist figure because he was basically doing all the things that the Antichrist is going to do because, you know, again, Satan has had to have his man at the ready throughout all of history because Satan doesn't know when the end times are going to come. So he's always had to have a person. And I believe that, you know, Hitler could have been his person if, if the timing was right. But, you know, Satan is not in control. God is in control. So things only happen on God's timetable, not on Satan's. So and, and as we're getting into modern times, we're eventually going to have this person, I believe, soon. I don't know how soon, but I, I you know, in the coming years and decades, you're finally going to have that person who will fulfill the role of the Antichrist. Because if you look at biblical prophecy and you look at what's going on in the world, we are extraordinarily close to these things happening. And I believe the Antichrist, I, I think the figure who's going to be the actual Antichrist is probably alive today because I don't think we're that far. I think we are less than a few decades away from these things happening. Could I be wrong? Of course I could. I, mean, I think every generation has thought they were the last generation and you know they were all wrong, so I could be wrong. But I think what's happening right now is, is unprecedented in world history and not just what's going on in the world, but how quickly it's happening. I mean, things are just accelerating exponentially. If you look at the world 20 years ago, it bears almost no resemblance to the world as it is today. Things we believed 20 years ago, we don't believe anymore. Things that were abhorrent to us, we now accept. Uh, but I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. Um, I could spend hours and hours talking about how close we are to the end based on the signs of the times of the modern age we're living in. But that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about the career of the Antichrist is outlined in the Old Testament. So let's stick with that. So we know what he is. He is the seed of the serpent juxtaposed to the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. So that's what he is. But who is he? Let's talk about what the Bible says about who he is, because the Bible says a couple of things about him. He's going to be a world leader and he's going to be the false messiah. Uh, which one should we talk about first? Well, let's start with the false messiah since we're staying on the, on the spiritual level. Let's keep in mind what Satan's goal has always been. It's been to be like the most high. The the I wills in um, in chapter 14 of Isaiah, he's, he, he says, I will you know extend to the clouds and put my throne above the stars of God, blah, blah, blah. I will be like the most high. So if he's going to be like God, he, he's going to need his own. He needs to be a fake triune like God. You know, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's going to have his own false trinity. We've talked about that before. And of course, the with the Antichrist being his false Jesus, and he is going to come out and mimic everything that Jesus mimicked. Again, and Jesus was primarily 
when he came to earth, the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. They rejected their true Messiah, Jesus, and they're going to accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. Jesus himself said, I come in my father's name and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. Jesus prophesies the fact that the um, unbelieving Jews will accept this man as their false Messiah. And there are prophecies about that. He's given names such as the idle shepherd, and I'll have that on the screen. He, the idle shepherd as opposed to the good shepherd who is Jesus, the, and, and God pronounces a curse on him. Woe to the idle shepherd who, who deceives the flock. Um, he also says um, another verse that he will not honor the God of his fathers, but will honor the God of fortresses. Who's the God of fortresses? Well, what's a fortress? A fortress is a stronghold. He will honor the God of strongholds, who is Satan. We talked about this during the series on the seven trumpets, where the purpose of those trumpets were to bring down the strongholds that Satan put up. Um, it also says he will ignore or he will not regard the desire of women. What does that mean? Well, some people have said that that means he will be gay, homosexual, because he won't he won't uh, regard the desire of women, which is, you know would be a desire of a woman desiring a man. And that could be. Now, honestly, at these this day and age, if he if a world leader came on the stage who was openly gay, he'd probably be more well received than someone who was straight, because that's just how upside down our values are. But I think it has a little more. Uh, I think it has a little more to do with um, his his religious aspects. In that the desire of women in the Old Testament, that was one of the names of Jesus. Jesus was called the desire of women, a desire of women. Why? Because during the time of before Jesus's birth, the desire of the Jewish women was to be the mother of the Messiah. They, they desired to be chosen to be the vessel through whom through whom the Messiah would come to earth, which, of course, was Mary. But all women wanted in Jewish times, in ancient Jewish times, they wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. So the. So not regarding the desire of women is another way of saying not regarding Jesus. So he is going to, again, be this substitute Christ. Um, and when we look in the New Testament, it's in the book of Revelation here, which which we'll talk about chapter 13 coming up, he will have a false resurrection. He will be wounded, a mortal wound, a wound to the head, and he will be healed and he will be he will be worshipped because of that. So that will be kind of a false resurrection. Jesus was killed and he was resurrected. The Antichrist was something very similar happened to him. And again, I think there's more going on to it than that. We'll talk about that a little bit down the road, but that's another way he's a false Jesus. He will also set him up to set himself up to be worshipped in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where only God is meant to be worshipped. And we're going to talk a lot more about how he presents himself as a false messiah in the next episode when we look at the first half of his career. But one thing to keep in mind, and I'll talk about this a few more times before we wrap things up, is that there's there's really two phases to the Antichrist's appearance during the tribulation. The first three and a half years and the second three and a half years of that seven year period. During the first three and a half years, he is going to be a certain way that is very acceptable. He's going to he's going to basically charm the world. He's going he's going to be very charismatic and he's going to be accepted as a, as the Jewish Messiah. He's going to be accepted as this as this great world leader. And then the second half, he's going to be very, very different. He's going to go from being the man with a plan to being the beast. And again, I don't want to talk too much about that because I'll save that for some upcoming episodes. So false messiah. Another uh, thing he's going to be is the world leader. And there are lots of prophecies about him being the world leader. He is called the, the prince that shall come. That is one of his titles in the Old Testament. He is going to rule the world 
Why? Through the same mechanism that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with. Remember that one of the temptations of Jesus that Satan had to, his last temptation was he took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, which means he did it in a spiritual sense. And he told Jesus, I will give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. Jesus, of course, rejected that. This Antichrist figure will not reject it. He will accept it. And he will, he, Satan will give him all of the control that Satan has currently over the nations of the earth. And if you go back a couple episodes, when we were looking at the trial of the ages and we looked at Daniel chapter seven, where um, we see how the Antichrist is commissioned after you have these four beasts that come out of the water that represent, uh, you know, the, there's the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then these indescribable beasts, which um, represented Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And after that, the um, there was this little horn that came up. There were 10 horns on the head of the spinal beast and one horn, little horn came up and, and speaking great words and power and authority was given to this little horn. That is one of the titles of the Antichrist. Why little horn? Well, because I think that this has to do with his physical and spiritual heritage. One interesting thing, I've, I've been referencing Nimrod and, it's, and I think that the Antichrist is going to be a latter-day version of Nimrod in more ways than one that we'll talk about in a couple episodes. But one thing that Nimrod was known for in tradition was wearing a, a horn, uh, an animal's horn, on his forehead. He, he, that's how he would adorn himself. That was his symbol. And that horn symbol was a, a representation of spiritual authority. We see throughout the Bible that horns mean spiritual authority both good and bad. Back in Revelation chapter five, which we talked about a while back, Jesus was presented as a lamb who had seven horns. Those seven horns are a spiritual authority. And of course, seven is a number of completion, meaning Jesus had complete spiritual authority. But these horns represent, the horns on the beast represent spiritual authority. And this little horn is a spiritual, is a, represents a spiritual authority. Nimrod wore a horn on his forehead signifying that he had spiritual authority as well as his, as his human authority. And I think that, again, the Antichrist is going to be Nimrod 2.0. And the reason he's a little horn is because unlike these you know, regular horns of authority, which are you know full angelic beings, the Antichrist being a part, Nimrod, we'll start with Nimrod, sorry, Nimrod being part man and part, um, part divine, because I believe he was a hybrid, he was a Nephilim, he was not as great an authority. And I think the Antichrist is going to also be some type of human spiritual hybrid. And I'll give my reasons for that in a couple episodes. But he, so he starts off as a little horn and he plucks three of the horns up by the roots, meaning that he is going to, when he comes to power, he's going to take out three other spiritual authorities. And what might those be? Well, my theory, and it's, again, it's only a theory speculation, is that I, I think the three that he, he plucks out is, are going to be the three major religions. And the spirits behind those and those major religions are Judeo-Christianity, which frankly is represented by Catholicism in the world, and then Islam and Hinduism. If he, he if, when he comes out, he's going to be worshipped eventually, which we'll talk about in just a minute. He is going to take out those three great religions, three great religions, and put himself in place of it because he will eventually want to be worshipped. But what we do know about him is that he will be a world leader. The Bible talks a great deal about that, about his authority. He. The, he is he's also called the willful king he is called um the the king who who do what he wills he's called the the son of perdition 
the man of sin, the lawless one. He's going, it says he's going to seek to change times in the law. He's going to have a great deal of temporal authority. So he's a world leader. And again, we'll delve into that a lot more in the next episode. But interestingly, his conquest of the world will not be complete. There are actually going to be a few places that will escape his, his, um, his rule. Uh, and most of those places are in the Middle Eastward area we call Jordan currently. And I believe that's because that's where God is going to keep Israel hidden from him until the time of Armageddon. But again, getting way ahead of myself. Okay, so we know what he is. He's the seed of the serpent. We know who he is. He's going to be a false messiah and he's going to be a world leader. Now we need to know how he is. What is his personality like? What is he going to be like as a person? And as I said, there are two aspects to him. The, the first half of the tribulation, Antichrist, and the second half. In the first half, he is going to be charming. He is going to be a great charismatic leader. He is going to be a, a great, great speaker. That's why some people were saying that, that Obama was a, a type of the Antichrist because he's a great speaker. And again, I'm not saying Obama's the Antichrist, not at all. I don't believe he is at all. But I think that he was someone who was, again, quasi-worshipped, and he was a, a really great speaker. You, you can say what you want about the guy, but he knew how to charm a crowd. And I think the Antichrist in the beginning is going to be like that. The Bible talks a lot about him as a talker. In fact, uh, my old mentor, uh, the late Chuck Missler, when he did a lot of Revelation study, and he said that, you know, of all the names of the Antichrist, he said, if you wanted to, if you wanted me to give you the best nickname for the Antichrist, he said he, he would call him Mr. Big Mouth. Because every time you, almost every time you see a description of the Antichrist, this guy is always running off of the mouth. He's always saying a lot of words. He, he speaks great words. He speaks blasphemies. He gets, speaks words against the Most High, against God. He is going to be, you know, a braggart, pompous, boastful. And that's how he's going to be at first. He's going to just be, a, he's going to have a way with words. He is just going to really charm people. And he is going to seem like the man with the plan. He's going to really inspire people. But then you're going to have the second half. Because in the second half of the tribulation, that last three and a half years, when I believe he's going to be possessed by spiritual evil, who we'll talk about um, a couple of episodes from now, he is going, those words he's speaking, those great words are now going to be, again, blasphemous words. He's going to speak against, you know, against God, against the, the dwellers of heaven, against Jesus. He is going to claim that he is God. He's going to demand to be worshipped. He's going to go from being the friendly, well, not friendly, but the charming and charismatic leader to what's called in the Bible, the king of fierce countenance. Your countenance is your facial expression. He's going to go from having this you know, obviously friendly, charming expression to having a fierce expression. When you see him in the second half of the tribulation, he's going to always look <laughs> angry. He's going to look fierce. He's going to be He's going to be scary, frankly. He's going to be the world dictator. He's going to go from being a world leader to a world dictator in that second half. He's going to demand worship. He's going to demand that you worship him under penalty of death. You have to take his mark in your right hand or your, or your forehead. And if you don't do that, you won't be able to buy or sell. That's about as dictatorial as you can get. There's going to be total surveillance. He's going to know what you're doing, when you're doing it, how you're doing it. And if you look at our current uh, electronic world, our current uh, technology, we're close to that right now. I mean, there's honestly everything you do is tracked. Your phone is tracked, your internet is tracked, your travel is tracked. Your every right now, the government knows where you are, what you're doing, and how you're doing it. 
even our own appliances, they call it the internet of things where there are, you know, uh, there's Wi-Fi and all of your stuff. And hey, even in my refrigerator, I have, there's my, my refrigerator has internet. It tells me when, when I need more milk and eggs because I can program that into it. And of course your TV has internet and your computer, of course. But now they're making sure that all your appliances that you currently buy have internet, they're wired. All that to say there's complete surveillance. And it seems like a good thing. I mean, hey, you know, my my my, my refrigerator can tell me when I need milk. That's a great thing. That's convenient. But and that's kind of the first half of the tribulation kind of thing. And the second half of the tribulation, my refrigerator is going to tell the Antichrist that um, he needs milk. And if he doesn't have the market, he can't get milk. I know I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. What I'm saying by that is he is going to take what looked like a benefit and turn it into um, a, an implement of control. And he is going to go from being loved to being feared and worshipped again under penalty of death. So that is who that's who the Antichrist is, that's what he is, and now we know how he is. So now with that said, it's time to get ready for the next episode. With this introduction, these last two um, episodes of introduction, we know we've looked at the myths about the Antichrist, we've looked at the truths about him in this episode, and now we're going to actually look at what his, his actual career um, in the Bible. We're going to look at him at his career in the tribulation. And in the next episode, we're going to look at how he's going to be in the first half of the tribulation, where he's going to set himself up as the good guy. We're going to look at how he possibly came to, how he will possibly come to be and what he'll be like as a coming world leader and the false messiah. And then the episode after that, then we'll look at him when he becomes the beast. And that's when we'll really take a deep dive into chapter 13. Okay, thank you for listening and watching. I appreciate it. Uh, please subscribe to Faith by Reason here on YouTube by hitting the subscribe button and the like button and the share button and all the buttons you can press. Please press them. You can also subscribe by going to faithbyreason.net and putting your information into the, uh, the your email into the right navigation bar so you can get notified of new episodes when they are posted. And we will talk to you next week when we look at the coming world leader.